As we go to prayer, let me read these words from the 138th Psalm. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Father, I pray that each day we will seek to understand what we really are, to draw upon the humility that belongs to each one of us, that we will not be haughty, but we will be people who acknowledge you as Lord and King and who recognize that it is our place to love one another and to pray for one another. And so, Father, we do pray for the church around the world where the cause of Christ is under persecution. We think, Lord, of the persecution in Sudan where literally three million uh, Christians have been killed in the last few years. And, Father, we know that in China where the true church is under great persecution and, and many are imprisoned and some have died. We pray for the work there as well. We know, Father, in the words of Tertullian that uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And as a result of persecution, the church does grow. But at the same time, Father, we uh, pray for those that are suffering and uh, that they will stand firm for the cause in the name of Christ and that you will be their strength and, and their help and that you will turn this world around, Father, in the sense of the proclamation of the gospel, that many, many, even this very day, will hear the, the, the preaching of the word and will turn to Christ. Father, I pray for Margie Jones this morning as she has been taken to the hospital. We ask that the doctors will be able to discover the, the problem that she is suffering immediately and be able to deal with, deal with it. We pray that whatever the uh, results of this fall uh, are that they will be quickly uh, healed and that you will grant a touch to Margie and encouragement to her soul even this morning. And uh, just glorify yourself in what you do. Bless our time here together, I pray, as we look further uh, at your word in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Again, if you'll turn to Second Samuel chapter 16, I'd like to read uh, the first four verses. Now when David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met, with him, met him with a couple of saddle donkeys, and on them were two hundred loaves of bread, a hundred clusters of raisins, a hundred summer fruits, and a jug of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why do you have these? And Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride, and the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for whoever is faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, Where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your sight, O my lord the king. On and on it goes. The machinations of human beings in an attempt to uh, bring things to their own good ever happening. Well, we noticed uh, last time that David uh, had flee from Jerusalem because his son Absalom has risen up in rebellion against him. And we saw that he passed out of Jerusalem and down through the valley of the Kedron 
and up onto the Mount of Olives. And there, as I pointed out last time, it's very probable that on the top of the Mount of Olives there, as he surveyed Jerusalem, much like Jesus would do two, uh, a thousand years later, he probably at that point wrote the third Psalm, which we read last week. He now is traveling further on with his entourage, and when it says he went down the eastern side, it means down the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. So he's gone up the Mount of Olives, and now he's passing down the other side. Now, the Mount of Olives is not a terribly high mountain. It's not a terribly steep mountain. It's whenever people visit Israel, almost always they, they walk up or walk down uh, the Mount of Olives as, as part of the pilgrimage uh, to the Holy Land. But nevertheless, it, it is a barrier, and once you've passed over the Mount of Olives, you no longer see Jerusalem because you're, you're dropping down and you will ever drop down until eventually you reach the valley of the, uh, of the Jordan River. And as David is passing down the eastern side, somehow Ziba has gotten word of the revolt and has been able to get together the wine and the bread and, and the fruit here and to intercept David to kind of assume or, or decide or maybe witness the route he was taking and go around the mountain so they could intercept David with a couple of donkeys laden with food and with wine. Back in the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel, we learned who Ziba was. Ziba was a servant of Saul. And when Saul had been slain, he was continuing to look out over Saul's estates. And you remember that when David wanted to honor uh, Jonathan after the death of Saul and Jonathan, the other two brothers of Jonathan, on Mount Gilboa, uh, David wanted to honor Jonathan, and so he was asking, is there anybody related to Jonathan that I, can, that I can bless in honor of my friendship with Jonathan? And some of his um, men pointed out that there was this man, Ziba. And Ziba had been a servant, and he would know. So Ziba was brought in before David, and Ziba said, well, yes, there is. Jonathan has a son whose name is Mephibosheth, and he lives up in the north, and uh, as you know, he's crippled in both of his feet. And so David, wanting to honor Jonathan, brought Mephibosheth to his household. And you remember David did two things. First of all, he gave to Mephibosheth all of Saul's lands, all of his grandfather's lands. Jonathan was the son of Saul, and Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. And so he gave all those lands. Now, the king could have expropriated those lands for himself. That would have been his right. He was the king. Uh, Saul was dead. Uh, Saul's family was no longer, uh, you know, empowered with the throne or the rule of the land. David was. And he could have taken uh, many of those lands, but he did not. He gave them to Mephibosheth, but put Ziba in charge of maintaining the lands. Only now, instead of Ziba reaping the fruit for himself, it, the prophet would go to Mephibosheth. And so we find in this page, as we read it, another example from Scripture of self-seeking. Ziba apparently believes that rebellion of Absalom is going to fail. Now, how does he know that? We don't know that. Of course, didn't know that. Uh, the way things looked at the moment looked like it was going to succeed. But I, I, he just kind of was hoping that uh, the rebellion would, uh, would fail. And so he was looking for an opportunity to discredit his mentor, Mephibosheth, so that loyalty. Now, what we find here in this passage uh, concerning what the donkeys are laden with are the typical foods of the Mediterranean world. As, as we've noted before, all the way from the, uh, actually, from the Atlantic coast of Morocco, clear over deep into the Near East, into Baghdad and, and even beyond, 
The typical foods that have been grown historically and eaten, many of them are listed here in this particular passage. It mentions loaves of bread. Now, of course, when loaves of bread comes to our mind, we think of these, looks like this, you know, and they're kind of round on top, and of course it's all sliced. <laughs> but uh, these are more like pitas. If you're accustomed to pita breads, they're round, kind of thick little things. That's a loaf, which is really basically what one person would eat. And, and he's got these loaves of bread. Now, they aren't made of this white, these aren't Wonder Bread pitas, you know. These are made with whole wheat or whole barley. They were, they were good for you. And uh, in addition, we, we hear, uh, we read raisins and summer fruits. Now, summer fruits probably are figs, might be dates, but most likely are, most likely are figs here. And then some wine. What's interesting is that these foods are calorie rich which is going to be needed for people who are out on their own and there's no McDonald's or jack-in-a-box to stop at along the way as they're making their, their trip. And they're, they're great food for traveling because no preparation is really needed. They're already prepared. All you have to do is eat them. Don't even have to take the plastic wrappers off since there weren't any, wasn't no plastic in those days. They were light, easy to transport, and, and easy to preserve. Isn't gonna isn't gonna rot overnight. Stuff is already dried and will stay for a long time. So it was the perfect traveling food, you could say. When David asked where Mephibosheth was, where's your master? Or he says your master's son, meaning Saul, Jonathan's son. Jonathan, of course, is dead. So it's just a way of of speaking. He means Mephibosheth. And when when David asked this, Ziba baits the trap. He says. He's still in Jerusalem. Well, that, that, you know, that puts a question in David's minds right away. David and his entourage have left Jerusalem. Why would Mephibosheth stay in Jerusalem? You know, if he's really committed to David and to his household, he was living in David's household and he was eating at David's table. So why was he not with him? Of course, David should have thought for a minute, oh, the guy's crippled. Did I take any, you know, did I do anything to help him? But he doesn't think that at all. And then Ziba springs the trap when he goes on to stay, say that Mephibosheth has said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. Well, what he's saying is, of course, that Jonathan was the eldest son of Saul. And so when Saul died, Jonathan should have inherited the throne, but he didn't because Jonathan died along with his father in battle. And theoretically, then, the throne should go to the eldest son or the surviving son of the eldest son of the previous king. That's the traditional way by which thrones are passed down. And that would have been Mephibosheth. So David, you know, could believe this because at least theoretically that uh, would have been the thinking of, of some people. Notice David's response. He responds, in effect, branding Mephibosheth a traitor. And he gives, right on the spot, he gives all of his lands to Ziba, which is what Ziba's there doing. That's what he's trying to do. And David falls for it. And David gives him the lands of Mephibosheth. What we find is Ziba reacts in a very, very exaggerated way, bowing and prostrating and, you know, slobbering all over David in, in effect. The question is, why did not David see through this very transparent ploy? Why did he not see through it? The words that Ziba puts into Mephibosheth's mouth, mouth are ridiculous. Today, 
You know, Israel's going to restore the kingdom of my, of my father to me. Well, I mean, this is Absalom's uprising. Absalom's in rebellion. Absalom's not rebelling in order to give the throne to Mephibosheth. That's not the purpose of this revolt at all. Absalom wants the throne for himself. You know, if David had thought for a minute, uh, wait a minute, say that again? This doesn't make sense what you're trying to say, but, but David doesn't. You know, David's in a hurry. David's been chased out of Jerusalem. He's, he's full of emotion about his son, and so he's not thinking very well. This is not a pro-Saulide uprising. It's an anti-David uprising on the part of his son, Absalom. Well, apparently the emotions of all that had transpired in the hours before were such that David could believe almost anything that he heard, particularly when he stops to remember that why was it he was chased around for a decade or more in the wilderness, but it was Mephibosheth's grandfather who did it. So, you know, like grandfather, like grandson, you know, some could say. Well, let's read on at verse 5. When King David came to Baharim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Ger. And he came out cursing continually as he came. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut his head off. But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son, who came out from me, seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on the way, and Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with him. And as he went, he cursed and cast thrones and threw dust at him. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. I wonder uh, what occurred to me here again with the tribe of Benjamin, closest proximity to uh, Jerusalem, and if, if there might not have been some of this uh, brewing over the years. Uh, it just pops out here again. You not only have a ship and a fibber ship, but you have uh, Shimei, Shimei as well. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, it, it, the scripture is, has been kind of silent about that, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. I mean, we, we just know, don't we, human nature, that undoubtedly it is. Now, I think Shimei is uh, simply expressing the, the feelings of many, probably, of the family at having been shoved aside and someone else has taken over, a total new family. Because even if Saul was dead and if, and if, if Jonathan was dead, Mephibosheth, in many people's minds, should have had the, you know, the right to the throne. But uh, he doesn't, and that's bugging him. Is this an example of kicking a man when he's down? 
David's been forced to ignominiously flee from Jerusalem by the rebellion of his own son, his own son who probably looked more like David than any of the other sons of David. And here we have this man, Shimei, just coming out of the blue, you might say, but as Dr. Walmark is, is implying here, really not out of the blue because there probably has been this undercurrent of uh, a feeling amongst the Benjamite tribe especially. One of the interesting things about reading through the Old Testament is you find the tribe of Benjamin is kind of at odds with the other tribes much of the time. Much of the time. Not only were they left-handed most of them, but <laughs> they're at odds in other ways. Not to say that if any of you are left-handed, you're necessarily rebels. <laughs> Entirely. <laughs> Paul was sure proud that he was a Benjamite. Yes, he was. Did he ever in imply that he was left-handed? <laughs> but this man Shimei comes along and proclaims before all of David's retinue here, that his hasty flight from Jerusalem, the rebellion of his son, is actually divine retribution for David's bloodshed and for his replacement of the house of Saul. Now, Barim, the place that uh, this happens, was apparently a village a few miles northeast of Jerusalem. Its exact location is undeciphered, undeterminable today, but not terribly far from Jerusalem. And so David hasn't really traveled very far. He's passed over the top of the Mount of Olives. He's, he's been met by Ziba. He has a couple of donkeys now with some food and wine on board. And, and, and they're, they're moving down. Now he's headed for the fords of the Jordan. We know that, which are north of the Sea of, of the Dead Sea. And so he's headed down more or less towards Jericho, uh, down in that particular direction. So Barim is somewhere up in the hills before you get down the escarpment into the valley. So David hasn't traveled very far before he's already faced with an insane tirade. Shimei, whose name means, hear me, appropriate, isn't it, belongs to the family of Saul. What relative, we don't know. Probably a cousin, maybe a distant cousin. We don't know. It doesn't really say. It just says he belongs to the family of Saul. And he didn't like the fact that the family had been displaced that the family you know, was no longer the royal family and, uh, and all of the uh, perks that came along with that. The insanity, however, of this is seen not only as he's standing on this hill yelling down all these, these almost blasphemous things at the king, but he's throwing stones, chucking rocks down there at David. But, but look at the end of verse 6. He's, he's throwing stones at David and all his servants. And all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and on his left. I mean, David is surrounded by a thousand well-armed men. You know, it's, 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 it's not exactly an example of the um, wisest action that a person might take at this. It seems like he had a momentary death wish. You know? What we do know, or what we can, I think, read into this, is that he is Satan's tool here. He's telling lies and he's making false accusations. And we know from Scripture that Satan has been a liar from the very beginning. And the Scripture calls him the accuser of the brethren. And that's what he's doing big time right here through the mouth of Shimei. As we know quite well, David had assiduously avoided 
doing anything to harm Saul or any of his family. In fact, he had brought Mephibosheth into his household and treated him royally. So what Shimei is saying here is false. It's a lie. He's basically saying that David has taken over. He's, he's usurped the throne of Saul's house, that, that he was a man of bloodshed in the sense that he had perpetrated, brought about the death of so many in the house of Saul. And it's all a lie because Saul and his three sons died on the Mount of Gilboa in war. And David had nothing to do with that war. He was hundreds, well, maybe a hundred miles away at the time and had, had you know, absolutely nothing to do with it. And God had anointed him to be the successor to Saul. So obviously God is, is not even in Shimei's mind here as he is making these accusations. So these accusations are totally without merit. Well, they're traveling along. And uh, here's this band of, of individuals. David in the middle and all these warriors and other members of his household, wives and children and all in tow here. And this guy all by himself walking along the hillside above chucking rocks and screaming down at the king. Well, some became very weary of this rain of insults and of rocks. And one of those was David's nephew. And David's nephew asks permission to silence Shimei permanently. Now remember Jesus' words when Peter said to Jesus, you shall not do this after Jesus had said he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to die. Peter says, no, far be it from you. And Peter, Jesus had to turn and he had to rebuke Peter. David turns and rebukes Abishai for similar reasons, because he's offering an overly simple solution to the problem. Go cut the guy's head off and he won't do this anymore, you know. And, and David is seeing this as a far bigger problem, a far greater issue than one man up there yelling and chucking stones down at the entourage. David then turns and he says to Abishai, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? <laughs> Remember, Zeruiah is his sister, David's sister, and these are his nephews. And when he says it, you notice he says sons, plural. So he's not just speaking to Abishai here. He's also speaking of Joab, because remember, Joab was probably the leading guy in his whole kingdom who would shoot first and ask questions later. And Abishai is, is demonstrating this, this same, you know, do what you have to do and then, you know, try to deal with the fallout uh, later on. So what we have here is David as a powerful example to us, as a man of humility and a man of restraint. Traits that are characteristic of godly leaders, male and female, down through history. As he had done throughout his dealings with Saul, David trusted God. Remember, David didn't kill Saul on numerous opportunities when he had the opportunity to do so, when he simply said, God will deal with Saul. He's God's anointed. I won't touch him. And so David further decides to trust God to justify him and to defend him in the midst of these accusations. He proclaims to his whole entourage, if my own son is in rebellion against me, then this man, this Benjamite, has the right to at least blow off steam if he wants to at me. I don't think, you know, David says some things here that you know, I think are his way of expressing uh, his feelings. He, he says there in um, verse 10, if the Lord has told him, curse David, 
then who shall say, why have you done so? I, I don't think the Lord told Shimei to curse David. And, and David goes on to say in the 11th verse, behold, well, he says about his son and everything. Uh, then in verse 12, he says, perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. Shimei was the tool of the, of the enemy. He was the tool of Satan. He was not God's spokesman here. But God did allow him to do this. God did allow him to do this. And it is a test. I mean, he's shouting false accusations against David, but it is a test of David's character. It's a further strengthening of him in front of the thousand or two thousand people, however many are in his entourage there. He can witness to this this whole group of people, including Abishai and Joab, that there's a better way to deal with a problem than to go and murder somebody to shut his mouth. Because God may be using this to accomplish his purposes. And I think this becomes so clear when David says, as I wrote, read a minute ago, perhaps the Lord will look upon my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing, this, this man's cursing. What we have here, I think, are some Old Testament examples of New Testament truth. Let me turn to the fifth chapter of Matthew for a moment. Matthew chapter 5, reading at verse 11. You know this very well. Part of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so persecuted, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, if David doesn't fit into this, I don't know who does. David is being falsely accused. He's being insul uh, insulted. He's being persecuted, in effect, for his faith in God, because God anointed him. God chose him to be the king of Israel. And this man, Shimei, is, is accusing him of usurping the throne and taking it away from the legitimate family, when it was God who had made the decision. And it was not a private thing. And so David is actually being persecuted for the cause of righteousness here. And God says, blessed are you. And if David had reacted by saying, yeah, go up there and cut the guy's head off, he would have lost all the blessing. He would have lost all the opportunity to demonstrate before all these people. Divine restraint. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's a very hard teaching. Because you and I, I could, maybe I should just say I, I don't know about you, but it, it tends to be a human nature to want to go out and... Uh, deal with evildoers ourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse, thir verse 11. 1 Corinthians 4.11 To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled we bless. When we are persecuted we endure. When we are slandered we try to conciliate. We have become the scum of the world, dregs of all things, even until now. Paul speaking very clearly about the fact that persecution for the name of Christ is to be endured because it is a blessing and it will result in God's purposes being accomplished. It is not fun, but nevertheless, 
it is something God is using, and God was using this for David to make him a better king than he had been up to this hour. And to demonstrate that before the very people that he had offended in the whole Bathsheba and Uriah thing many years before. David here is, is exhibiting the attitude of the new nature. When, when we come to Christ, we're given a new nature. And Abishai is, is exhibiting the old nature. We're to bless and not curse those who persecute us. The old nature says, punch them out. <laughs> it's the natural reaction that we have in the old nature. And so we have Abishai, like his brother Joab, a man of action, a man of violence. How do you deal with a problem? You kill it. Patience, diplomacy, faith in God were not part of the character of either Abishai or Joab. David needed the sons of Zeruiah. They would serve him well, but they tried his patience on many occasions. Now, we don't know how long Shimei kept up this diatribe, walking along. Can you imagine you're walking, you're walking, and this guy's up here yelling curses down and throwing rocks down and throwing dirt down. And, you know, you get a little tired of it after a while, I would think. We don't know how long this took place, but it probably lasted a while. It wasn't like five minutes. It probably went on for an hour or two hours. Who knows how long it went on? Verse 13 tells us that he walked on the ridge parallel to the route that David was taking. Obviously, he was walking in a little gully, a wadi, a, a, a valley. And, and this guy was walking on the parallel ridge, following him along. And if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know there's no lack of rocks to throw. <laughs> they are everywhere. That's why stoning was the principal cause of capital punishment, or the principal means of capital punishment, because it was everywhere. You didn't have to hunt up a bow and arrow or a, or a rope or anything else. I mean, rocks were just everywhere. You could stone anybody in place you felt like it. Not biblically, but I mean, you could. At some point, though, I think he got a little frustrated because he was being ignored. <laughs> he was yelling and screaming and doing all stuff, and they were walking down as if he wasn't even there. And, and I think he finally got tired of it and he went home. I guess he got it all out of his system and probably when he got home he thought, what have I done? <laughs> I could have been killed so easily. This was certainly a great relief when he stopped, not only to David but to the whole entourage. You all know how it feels when somebody you care about is being maligned. You hurt for them. And certainly David's entourage hurt for David and, and they, they knew it wasn't true but they hurt for him. So it was a relief to everybody when this guy finally went away. Verse 14 tells us that when they got to their encampment for the evening, they were all very weary. It doesn't name the encampment, doesn't say where they were, but they were all very weary. Not only had they walked many miles, but they literally had endured a satanic attack. An attack of Shimei up there yelling and cursing and throwing rocks and also the attack of the rebellion of Absalom, which triggered this whole thing to begin with. Just imagine how everybody was discomfited. I mean, all of these people who were David's entourage were in Jerusalem comfortable in their homes, seeing the kingdom go, grow. Uh, the empire is spreading. The name of David and of Israel spread far and wide. The God of Israel is honored in many places. And suddenly it all falls in like a house of cards. And, and they can't believe it. And they can hardly believe they're out here walking, trying to escape from Jerusalem because it's all collapsed. They're weary. 
Most of you are aware of the fact that, that weariness is exas physical weariness is exacerbated by emotional stress, depression, pressure. Makes you just feel all the more weary uh, than ever before. However, David, and, and it says specifically David, but we assume the whole retinue were refreshed by food and rest that night and blessed silence. Verse 15. Then Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. Now it came about when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? He means, of course, David, because Hushai had been one of David's chief counselors. Why did you not go with your friend? How come you're not with my father David, he's saying. Then Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the, wh whom the Lord, this people, and all men of Israel have chosen, his will I be, and with him I will remain. And besides, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence." When Absalom and his father and, and his followers entered Jerusalem, they were undoubtedly met with a vast horde of people with mixed emotions. Just think of the people in Jerusalem now. Several thousand. We don't know what the population of Jerusalem was. It couldn't have been huge because the area that was in, in that city of Jerusalem was only a few acres. And, and so the city couldn't have been too, too heavily populated. But there was a, a total array of emotions amongst the people there. Some, of course, cheered enthusiastically, yay, hooray for the new king Absalom, because they believed his rhetoric that he would be a better king than his father. There were some who cheered maybe kind of half-heartedly, uh, yay, I think, you know, hooray, I think, because they hadn't had time enough to really think through this. What, what, is, what has happened? It's all happened so quickly. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? There were some who wept at the loss of the godly King David. And you remember they were already weeping, some who couldn't leave when David left. And as the scripture told us, as he was leaving the gate, there were some who wept. And certainly they wept now as his son came into town. And then there were some certainly who were angry, who held animosity against David, uh, I'm sorry, against Absalom, for usurping the throne of the godly King David, the legitimate king of Israel. I think Absalom and his men were very surprised at the ease by which they captured the city. There was no fighting. Um, the gates were open to them. There was nobody shooting at them from the top of the wall, which they could have expected had David decided to defend the city against his son. He captured the throne as if it were there waiting for him. What this illustrates to us, I think, is that the broad way of rebellion against God seems smooth and spacious at first, but eventually pitfalls begin to multiply as a warning of the yawning precipice that lies ahead. We see this in our society all the time. The first major pitfall would be Hushai. Absalom knew Hushai, Hushai's loyalty to his father David. More loyal was he than Ahithophel. Because Ahithophel had broken him free from David earlier and joined and, and willingly joined Absalom's uprising. Hushai, as we know, because if you weren't here last week, 
you go back to the 15th chapter, David said to Hushai, because Hushai wanted to go with David, and David said, look, you're too old, and you're going to slow us down, but you can really help me go to Jerusalem and say that you're going to be loyal to, uh, to Absalom, but give him, but, but counteract Ahithophel's counsel. Whatever Ahithophel tells him to do, you tell him to do the opposite. You will serve me well that way. And so here is Hushai, and Absalom knew very well how loyal Hushai had been to David, so he was surprised. And he was very suspicious. What are you doing here? How come you were not with your friend, my father? Why are you here? You're so loyal to him. What are you doing? And he was especially suspicious, of course, when Hushai is saying, long live the king, long live the king. Absalom couldn't believe it at first. But he presented himself to serve Absalom as his counselor. Hushai was a good counselor. And he was obviously capable of convincing Absalom that he had seen the light of day and he had switched to Absalom because obviously he says, whom God has chosen and whom the people have chosen and who is the king's son, who better can I serve? And his words are, as I served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. Implying that as I had well served David, I will well serve you as a counselor. Absalom bought it, hook, line, and sinker. He underestimated his father, that his father could have anything to do with this. And of course, partly I believe God has simply blinded Absalom's eyes so that, so that he does believe this and, and he doesn't see behind it and he is not suspicious of this man. And we discover he is so convinced of the loyalty of Hushai, that he will put full confidence in what Hushai will counsel him to do. What is going to happen in, in the days ahead is an illustration of, of Jesus' words, of Jesus' parable, which you, you all know so well, but let me just uh, read it in Matthew chapter 7. Of course, Jesus would give this parable much later, but Jesus' parables and Jesus' teachings are all eternal truths. So they were true in the days of David as they would be later. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared with a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. Yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who has built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. Whatever we think of David, David had built the house of his life and the house of his kingship upon the rock, Yahweh, upon the rock, of the Word of God. And when the storm of rebellion rages against him as it does here, he survives it. Not only does he survive, he will come through victoriously, as we shall see. In spite of the occasional tragic disobedience, as we've already noted so well, and the doubt that occasionally came into his mind, David loved the Lord and he loved the Word of the Lord and God even used him to pen some of the Word of the Lord. And as a result, he honored God 
And God honored him. Let me read these words from the 13th chapter of Acts, verse 22. He says, He raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he, God, also testified and said, I, God, have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Can you imagine a better epitaph? What better epitaph could you have on your stone than those words? But on the other hand, we have the man Absalom, who built his house not on the sand, he built it on quicksand. His own plans, his own abilities, his desire to take the throne because he wants the throne. Did he ask God? Absolutely not. And the result would be utter disaster. He ignored God. He ignored the word of God. There is no evidence anywhere that he at any time honored God or sought God. And he had chosen to be the Lord of his own life. I am the captain of my own ship. Yes. And that ship will go down like the Titanic. Obviously, the God of this world had blinded his eyes so that he could go forth thinking that he was accomplishing great things and not seeing that he was damning his own soul. The contrast is very stark because if you look at David, go do to a concordance and look up David, you're going to find the name David appears 1,100 times in Scripture in 28 books, including New Testament books. What about Absalom? <laughs> his name outside of this eight chapters here in 2 Samuel, his, his name only appears eight other times in Scripture. <laughs> How pathetic is the effort of man in his own flesh to do his own will and to proclaim it as good, as opposed to the humble man of God, a humble woman of God who seeks to do the will of the Lord, even if it brings cursing by the world, to let God be the one who brings vengeance. Let God be the one who resolves it and brings good. And have an epitaph as David had. He raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified. And these are the words of the Lord. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. What is God saying? All my will. Didn't David commit adultery with Bathsheba? Didn't he have Uriah murdered? Yes, he did. But he confessed his sin and he turned away from it and God forgave him. And so when God says he does all my will, he's saying his heart is right before me. Even in his sin, he turns and he rejects it. and He, he, is, he is transformed. And that's what honors God. He knows we're not perfect. Every one of us is full of blemishes. And we're, we're all men and women of sin. And yet if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. And he calls us men and women after his own heart. And that's what is so powerfully encouraging, I think, to us. Well, we'll look at the last verses of the chapter next week. <laughs>